0: This morning, we're going to go back to the book of John in chapter 12, so I invite you to turn to John 12 this morning as we continue to see throughout the book of John that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And as we've entered John 12, we have now entered what is really the beginning of the last few weeks, the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry as he is now um, preparing to go to the cross we entered what is commonly referred to as the Passion Week. We saw his entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we observed um, the reactions to those things. And, and last week, we saw uh, the, the Greeks that were there in the area coming to Jesus and how this began to signal that the hour of Jesus had come. And so today, in verses 27 through 36 of John chapter 12, we look at this idea of face the cross. I invite you to follow along as we read our text this morning, John 12, verses 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, will draw, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, and hid himself from them. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have set aside to study the word of God together. Thank you for inspiring and preserving your word for us to read today. Thank you for Beaverton Baptist Church and the faithful testimony of many who have come before us, who have kept the doors of this church open, who have preached the word of God. Lord, today we are just thankful to be another part of the history of this church. And may we today be faithful to proclaim the Word of God, to listen to what it has to say to our hearts and lives. May we be willing to change whatever it is you lay on our hearts with your help. I pray that today you would fill our vision with the cross. Even as Jesus, at this point in his ministry, looked ahead and began to face the cross, may we realize that we in our lives must face that cross for salvation, for continued sanctification, we need to never lose the wonder of that and the submission of our lives to you. Lord, we pray that you will be honored and glorified in everything that's said and done here. In your name we pray. Amen. There are times in our lives when the signs are obvious. And they point us to this: you need to pay attention. The clock is winding down in the fourth quarter, and the score of the game is close. Pay attention. The signs signaling a work zone increase in frequency. Pay attention. The pastor says, Now, if you don't get anything else, get this. Pay attention. Your spouse leans in close and says, I have something exciting to tell you. Pay attention. A parent tells a child, Hey, we really need to talk. Pay attention. Roughly 20% of the Gospels found in the New Testament that give us the selected account of Israel at the time of Jesus and Jesus' time on earth are devoted to the last week of his life. 20% of material that covers roughly 33 years, and in particular, three years of ministry, 20% of it is devoted to about seven days. The message is clear. Pay attention. The cross of Jesus isn't something that we can just say, well, it's important. The cross is vital. Without the cross, there would be no substitute for sin. Without the cross, there would be no forgiveness available to mankind. Without the cross, there would be no hope. And as Jesus' time to go to the cross drew, drew closer, his message was one of importance. And his message was, pay attention. Come to me. Believe in me. Find life in me. And as Jesus prepares to face the cross, he invites us to do the same, that we may find life in himself and that we may live that life in him. And what we see here in this passage before us today is that because of Jesus' work on the cross, victory over sin and life in God are secured for all who trust in him. It's because of the cross. And it's something that we must do in our lives if we are going to enter a relationship with Jesus. We must face the cross. We must see it for what it is. We must see what Jesus has done there. And if we're going to live a life as a disciple that pleases God, we have to continue to face the cross. Not as a trinket and not as, well, that's just something that we put up at the front of our churches, but, but it, because it is a momentous occasion in the life, uh, in, the, in the pages of human history, and in the pages of redemption of mankind, the cross is vital to our lives. And Jesus stood there in Jerusalem in, during the, the last week of his life on earth, the last week of his ministry before the cross, facing the cross and telling those people who were there, the importance of it and what it was signaling and what would come because of the cross. So let's look at the passage before us today and see what is it that Jesus tells us about his coming death on the cross. Well, in verses 27 through 30 of this passage we see first of all the father's glory in the cross. Jesus, in verse 27, is experiencing troubled anguish in his heart, in his soul. He says, now is my soul troubled. Jesus, as God, knows all things. He knows what lies ahead in the cross. Now understand, the people who are around Jesus that day do not know that they're going to crucify him in just a few days. But he knows. He knows what is coming. He knows the sacrifice that he will make and what it means for himself. Jesus, as God the Son, has been in uninterrupted communion with God the Father from eternity past. Imagine that. There has been no separation between God the Father and God the Son from eternity past up to this point. So the cross will be a truly horrible experience for Jesus because on the cross, the wrath of God will be poured out on him because he will be the propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath for mankind. The cross is a truly horrible thing. This knowledge touches Jesus and then we see the humanity of Christ come through in this. Because remember, John presents very clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He, he presents him as not just a man, he is God. But he also gives, shows us the humanity of Jesus. And, and Jesus says here that his soul is troubled. Now that word that speaks of being troubled is a word that means to be shaken, disturbed, upset, and unsettled. If you're familiar with what the Gospels record about Jesus' night in the the Garden of Gethsemane and things that that he experienced there, the, the same emotions and anticipations are seen here in this statement that Jesus makes in verse 27. The cross came with great weight. It came with great shame. It came with a burden that no mere human could bear. But Jesus made in the likeness of men Would bear it for us. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15: Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus was made like us but he is still God, he is above us, and he came to pay the price of our sin. Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, did not look forward to the agony of the cross. At the same time, his love for us and his obedience to the Father drove him to the cross, and he did not avoid it. Jesus continues here as he talks about the Father's glory in the cross. In verses 20, the second part of verse 27 into verse 28, we see the, the glorified resolve of Jesus as he faces this. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus agonizes over the cruel death that awaits him in just a few short days. However, He expresses his mission and purpose in the hypothetical questions that are proposed here and presented in verse 27. Jesus says, what will he ask the Father? What shall he say to the Father? Should he ask to be saved from the hour that is drawing near? And again, I would remind you of what happened in the shift that took place last week as the Greeks approached Jesus. All throughout John, the hour of Jesus had not yet come. But as the Greeks came to approach Jesus, we saw the shift that happened in that passage that Jesus says, my hour has come. And what is that hour? That is the hour that he would go to the cross, that he would pay the price of sin's penalty, that he would would satisfy the wrath of God. The time is drawing near when Jesus would be lifted up. And as Jesus looked ahead, to this impending moment in his life, the question is legitimately asked, what will he ask? When we are troubled in our souls, what do we ask? Will Jesus ask the Father to remove this from him? Will he shy away from the price of Calvary? Will the work go unfinished? And these hypothetical questions that are asked, there is an answer that resounds, and the answer is no. That is not what Jesus will ask. Jesus made it crystal clear, this is the purpose for which he has come. What did he say here? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is the whole reason that Jesus came, was to redeem men from sin. And though it would be an indescribably awful experience, he would despise the shame, looking ahead to the joy That would follow. You see, the work of the cross is what gives you and I new life in Jesus. The work of the cross is what motivates believers to continue on in the Christian race. The writer of Hebrews also said in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus is not just glorification with the Father. It is also the adoption of all those who trust in him. That is the joy of Jesus. Because heaven rejoices at each soul saved from sin by the gracious gift of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, Christian, as you live this life, as you continue on in this temporal world, looking ahead to heaven, look to the cross. Look to what Jesus did. He talks about how we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you think about these people up there cheering you on, right? That's really not what Hebrews is telling you. I hate to burst your bubble if you thought all of the you thought Moses and everybody was saying, go, go, go. Right? What they're witnesses to, they're witnesses to following Jesus. Following God is worth it. Trusting in Him will lead you there. They're witnesses that God is who He says he is and keeps His promises. What motivates us isn't them. What motivates us is what Jesus has done for us. Look to the cross. But the joy that Jesus would experience was preceded by a terrible cost. But what was the motivation of this cost? He says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. The desire of Jesus is that the Father, God the Father, would be glorified. And this has been the motivation of all of Jesus' work. If you've paid attention, as we've studied the book of John, he has stated this mission over and over again, that the Father would be glorified. Jesus didn't do what he did to grow his own following. He didn't do what he did to serve his own agenda. He did this because this is what the plan that God the Father had laid forth. He did this to bring glory and honor to the name of God the Father. The one who seeks to do the will of God and not his own will is the one who glorifies God. And here, Jesus once again says that he will glorify the Father. And that's the thing about the cross. One of the things we have to realize about the cross is the cross isn't about you and it isn't about me. It's about the work of God. Now, We are beneficiaries of the mercy, love, and grace poured out on the cross. But the primary person glorified in what Jesus did on the cross is God the Father, who sent forth his Son to be made sin for us, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. This was his plan of redemption for fallen men. You see the cross isn't about me and what can I get out of it it's about what God has done on my behalf. It's about the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you know what it isn't because he was overpowered or had no choice it is because he willingly submitted himself to the will of God the Father. Remember this Jesus was no victim of his circumstances. He had stated this earlier in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I, what? Lay down my life. Why? That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The work of the cross was the work of God all along, and the work of the cross was done Not because Jesus was taken by surprise, but because he gave his life willingly in sacrifice for yours. Jesus would not short-circuit the plan of redemption. He would see these things through to the bitter end. And he was motivated by love and grace and mercy and ultimately the glory of God. And as he declares the imminency of this hour and the glory of God in these things, God the Father confirms this and we see the Father's glory in the cross in what, what is said in the second part of verse 28 into verse 30. It says, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is the confirming word that the mission of Jesus is being served. Now, two other times in the ministry of Jesus on earth was there an audible voice of God the Father heard from heaven. The first came at the baptism of Jesus. The second came on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John beheld the glory of Jesus there. As Jesus expounds on his coming work of the cross and the, the, the work that would glorify the Father, the Father once again authenticates here Jesus and his work. You see, the greatest thing... That can ever happen to one who says, "I want to glorify God." The greatest thing that can ever happen to that person is they glorify God in what they do. And here, the Father confirms that Jesus has that His name has been glorified through Jesus' work, and that He will do the same thing again in Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' death would be no different than his life in regard to God's glory. And just as Jesus lived for the glory of God and performed signs for the glory of God, his work on the cross would be for the glory of God. Jesus didn't come to make a name for himself. He didn't come to amass wealth, followers, fame, or anything else. He didn't come to lay down a set of rules that nice people follow. He came to show that there is life in himself, the Son of God. He came to glorify God by calling sinners to himself. That is why Jesus came. And the cross is a magnanimous display of God's attributes, because God's glory is seen most when His attributes are put on display. God's love for sinners, His wrath against sin, His perfect justice, redeeming grace, and forgiving mercy are all seen on the cross. Why wouldn't it glorify God? The crowd hears the noise of God's voice. Did you catch that though? It seems that none of them understand what has just happened. There are some who say, well, it thundered, right? They heard this voice. They didn't really understand. So, well, it it just thundered. Others say that an angel was speaking to Jesus, and it seems there that the vast majority of people who were there in Jerusalem listening to Jesus and what he said did not understand what had been said or that something even had been said. But really, does that surprise you in everything you've seen in the book of John? Here are people dull of hearing, deaf to the things of God. They failed to hear and understand the written word of God. How could we expect they would hear God's voice? And the same is true today. People clamor for more revelation from God. They call for signs and wonders and miracles and voices. And if God would just do this, then I would believe him. They claim that that they see something that would convince them that God is real. But as one pastor said, "The the issue is not that God is silent, but that fallen sinful people are deaf. My friend, if you will not hear the word of God, if you will not listen to what God has said and revealed here, then you have no other hope. This is the answer. This is what God has said. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in our natural sinful state, we have no ability to perceive the things of God. You say, well, that's really great. You just told me I need to listen to the word of God and then you just told me I can't understand it. Thanks a lot, right? But here's the wonderful thing. God uses his Holy Spirit in our lives to illuminate his word to show us who we are and who he is and our need to trust in him. My friend, if you will open the word of God and you will ask God to use his word to speak to you and you will ask him to use his word to show you what he wants you to know, he will use his word in that way in your life. It is a supernatural work of God's grace and his mercy in our lives. And that is true for one who doesn't know God, who is seeking God, and that is true also for the Christian who wants to know God more. Christian, don't open this Bible like a textbook and say, okay, what is the next passage I'm assigned to read today? Come before God and say, God, use your word in my heart today. Now, I would advise you as a Christian to have a a method to how you study the Word of God. You know, don't don't say, God, show me something today, and just open it and start reading, right? Because there is, by the way, a natural point in your Bible where it's probably going to open to, and you're going to read the same thing over and over. Not that that's bad, right? But you should be familiar with more than just one or two sections of the Word of God. But as you open to where it is you read the Word of God today, ask God, teach me, show me. Use your spirit to illumine your word in my heart today. And I will tell you that the more you read God's word, the more you humble yourself and ask him to to teach you these things, the more you'll realize you didn't see before. The more you realize how God will use that word in your life today as he hasn't before. God is not silent, and he will give you the grace to understand his word. But you must come to the realization that what you need is right before you. The people in Israel, in this passage, didn't quite understand this truth. They didn't understand that what they needed was standing right in front of them. But God continued to show them his grace. And he continued to give them evidences of his identity and his plan through Jesus. And so Jesus states there that the voice that they had heard from heaven did not come for his sake, but for theirs. He didn't need the reassurance that he was the son of God fulfilling the plan of God. God confirmed that for the people who were standing there. And even if they didn't understand the words, and even if they didn't realize that God had spoken, the evidence still remained a voice had come from heaven. And now Jesus shares more of what the cross will do. With the glory of God seen in the cross, the glory of God and the Father and Jesus now shares the purposes of the cross. There are 3 that Jesus lists here in verses 31 through 33. The first one comes in the first part of verse 31, and that is the judgment of the world. Jesus says, "Now is the judgment of this world." Jesus faces the cross with anticipation and consternation, but he also faces it with resolve, knowing that God will be glorified. And so here are the victories that come out of the work of the cross. First, the first victory is judgment upon the world. Now, the Jews, God's chosen people, will be a microcosm and a representation of the world in the events that are about to unfold in the next little bit of Jesus' life. They... Would soon pass judgment on Jesus, condemning him to death. And though they seem to be the ones who were passing judgment on Jesus, instead it would be the opposite. He, they would be the ones who would be judged by Jesus' work. Their sinful actions will be judged by the Holy God. You see, the world thinks it can pass judgment on Jesus and his followers, but in reality, it is Jesus who will appear and who will be their ultimate judge. Jesus already stated that, I believe it's in John chapter five, where Jesus already states that God will give him the judgment of the world. All must appear before him. The cross is what brings us about. The cross is what finishes the mission of God. Jesus was given the keys to declare sentence on all who reject him. So how does this work out? Well, number one, For the one who places faith in Jesus, his sin is judged in Jesus' finished work. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, that he died and rose again and sits in heaven with the Father, that you confess that you are a sinner, that you repent from that sin, that you believe in Jesus and place your faith in him and him alone, the judgment of your sin is placed on the cross. Jesus took it for you. I used that word earlier. He became the propitiation for your sin. That's a big word. It's an important word for your theology, by the way. So maybe we should all practice it, right? Propitiation. You try it. Okay, now, I won't make you spell it, okay? You can type it into Google. But it's a word that means appeasement, satisfaction of the wrath of God. God is justly angry at sin. He is taking out his wrath and vengeance against sin on the cross on Jesus in his sacrifice. And so what is the purpose of the cross? The judgment of the world. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, who is judged for your sin? Jesus is judged for your sin. But I want you to see the other side. The other side is this that if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, that if you think that Jesus is, is good or okay, but I'm gonna try to do my own thing to get to heaven, or I reject Jesus outright and, and, and very hostily approach Jesus, you are judged by the finished work of Jesus on the cross because Jesus came to pay the price and you turned your back on that work. You are judged for your sin because of the cross. So what does the cross do? The purpose of the cross, number one, is to judge the world. And if the cross brings judgment on the world, it necessarily brings judgment on the world's ruler. Look at the second part of verse 31 and see this. Not only does the cross bring judgment of the world, but secondly, it brings the defeat of Satan. Satan. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This world is full of sin. Do you agree? Yeah. It has been that way ever since man chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. It is ruled by the Prince of Darkness, Satan himself. He is the one who leads rebellion against God. He is the one who holds mankind captive in sin. But the defeat of Satan has always been promised. Even as the the judgment for mankind's sin against God came down, look what God said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's another big word that you don't have to remember for your theology, but this verse is called the prot evangelium, which means the first declaration of the gospel. This is the first point of the gospel in, in the Bible, and that is this, that one day the deliverer would come and crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus is saying here, as he stands in Jerusalem, the defeat of Satan is coming at the cross. The cross secures this reality. Satan will be cast out. That in Jesus, there is victory over sin. This morning, our scripture reading was in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as Paul shared there in Second Corinthians chapter 5 of the realities that we have in Jesus, he was sharing uh, about the secure victory. That the old has passed away. That the new has come. And he shared even in there that Satan was defeated by what Jesus had done. And I'm looking back here to find the exact verse because it came to my head as I was saying that, and I can't find it. But you start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 and read all the way down to verse 21 where we were this morning. And you will find what I'm talking about, Okay. But the the defeat of Satan was secured by Jesus' work on the cross. There is salvation from the dark domain in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus over sin. And one day, what Jesus refers to here in this verse is that Satan will be cast out once and for all, thrown into the bottomless pit. Why? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain. Jesus' death secured his victory. His finished work dealt the crushing blow. And therefore, those in the world are drawn to the cross. So the third thing that Jesus shows us here. The world is judged because of the cross. The the leader, the prince of darkness, is cast out because of the cross. In verses 32 through 33, Jesus, because of the cross, draws all men to himself. He says here, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As you look at the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, it might seem like Satan's triumph, but nothing more, it is nothing more than his utter defeat. The cross is therefore a dividing point for the history of the world. Everyone must make a decision about Jesus and his work on the cross. Jesus states here that Jesus will draw all people to himself. That all will make a decision about him at the cross. Now, this is not some universalist claim that everyone because of the cross will be placed in God's kingdom. Instead, what Jesus is speaking of here is that Jesus, that his cross Calls to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember what has just happened. The Greeks have come to seek Jesus. And Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. doesn't matter what, what nation you're from. doesn't matter what your, what your background is. Your societal standing, your race, your net worth, your family background, and anything else you think may divide or classify you has no meaning at the cross. There is no delineation found there. Jesus calls to you regardless of what, what mankind may use to divide us. His grace transcends all boundaries that you may find life in him. And once again, Jesus here indicates the type of death that he will die. He talks about being lifted up to die on that cross. And this lifting up on the cross draws mankind to himself. And in a sense, everyone is drawn to the cross, and not necessarily for salvation. You must choose what you will do with Jesus. You are drawn to, your, to the cross that you may respond to him. Do you trust him or reject him? You must do something with Jesus and his work. The work of the cross was Jesus' decisive work, He would initiate judgment on the world, expel the prince of darkness, and draw sinners to salvation, all in this one great work. And even as he once again predicts this work, the reactions begin to flow. We see in verses 34 through 36, the reactions to the cross. In verse 34, we see that once again the crowd is quite confused by what they hear. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So once again, the ignorance of God's people shines through in this passage because they clearly understand what Jesus is saying about him and his death. They clearly understand that he is saying that he will be lifted up, that he will die there. But once again, we see that this doesn't jive with their ideas of the Messiah. Their cherry picked passages about the eternal reign of the Messiah don't line up with what they have heard from Jesus. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, how can he say that he will die? In verse 23, he has just referred to himself as the Son of Man. And that title comes from Daniel chapter 7 and has messianic implications. So now the people wonder, and really what they're saying in mocking tones is here they ask, well, what type of son of man can Jesus really be if he's going to die? Ignorance of the truth of God's word leads us to wrong and costly conclusions. The people turn to the scriptures, promising the eternality of the Messiah. They looked at verses like Isaiah 9-7 that says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That looks like the eternal kingdom, doesn't it? They looked at Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where their fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. That looks like an eternal kingdom, doesn't it? And it is. And it's coming. But while they looked at all these passages, they ignored all the rest that talked about the death of Jesus Christ. The death of the Messiah. Clearly, those in that crowd that day assumed the Messiah would, ex- would meet these expectations in his first appearance. And so, with Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man, subsequently tied to his forthcoming death, they began to question his identity. They asked this question, who is the Son of Man? And what they're doing in their reaction is expressing unbelief in him. Jesus cannot be him that is the Messiah, the Son of Man, because he is going to die. But the reality is Jesus is him. He is the Lamb of God given to take away sin. He is the King of kings who will sit on David's throne. He is the Lord of lords before whom all will bow. And as his hour draws ever nearer, he admonishes those gathered to place faith in him. See, in the reactions to the cross, you have the reaction that's taking place in the crowd, but then you see what does Jesus admonish them to do in verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus hears the crowd's response and he warns them that there's a danger that they are facing. They have enjoyed in their lives and they're still presently enjoying the presence of the light. And what he is referring to there is is himself, Jesus, the light of the world. He has come to show God's light found in himself. He has come to call them to the light that they may live in him and no longer walk in darkness. However, in his coming death, he will soon depart from him. He will be crucified, he will rise again, and then soon after that, he would ascend to the Father. And they would no longer have the opportunity to interact with him in person. So the necessity of trust in him is illustrated vividly here. Jesus talks about one who walks in darkness has no idea where he is going. The picture in Jesus' day may mean a little more than it does to us today. Because there's no such thing in that time as streetlights and, and neon signs and these sorts of things. People didn't travel at night when Jesus was, was alive it just was dangerous. You, you didn't do that. You know, I grew up in the city. It didn't really matter what time of day it was. You, you, there were things you, probably places you shouldn't go at night, but you could still get around pretty well because you could see where you were going. I'll tell you, moving from Atlanta, Georgia to Beaverton, Michigan is a little bit of a shock in that regard, right? You go out at night and it is dark, right? But even darker still, were the times of night when Jesus lived. And he said, look, no one goes out in the night because you can't see where you're going. You can't determine if you're going the right way, if you'll reach your destination, or what hazards you're going to experience along the way. But Jesus says, he uses that to illustrate the darkness of sin in their lives. And he says, the presence of light changes this. You see, the light gives us assurance of all of those things in the light you can see where you're going you can see what's in your way and you can be assured that that i'm going to get there because I, i can see where i'm going jesus the light of the world makes all believers children of light you see you place your faith in jesus christ you can know where you will spend eternity you can know true assurance and peace. You can know that you can live for the glory of God and have confidence in him. These are the benefits of the light. If you are here today and you know Jesus Christ, you can rest in this. I know where I'll spend eternity, and I know that I'll live, I can live for the glory of God, and I know that I have a Savior who helps me. That's the light. And this is Jesus' invitation here. He invites those who are listening there and us today to place faith in himself. Just think about it, if you would, for a minute. The difference between King Jesus and all other kings. Jesus is not a monarch who sits in a castle behind a drawbridge and closed doors and guards. Jesus stands outside the castle and says, come to me. Have a relationship with me. He invites you to himself. And we see, though, that he is surrounded that day by people who do not accept him. So many of them turned to darkness. They stumbled their way around, heading for destruction. They didn't know what life was about, or where they were headed. And the same is true today. There are so many who stumble through this life. Who go from one crisis in their life to the next. Who go from one unfulfilling experience and relationship to the next. Who go from one high of feelings to the next. And in between is darkness. Because they don't have the light of Jesus. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt where your eternity is because that comes through faith in the light. It doesn't come through faith in, well, when I was a kid, I said a little prayer, and I hope I really meant it. There's no hope there. It comes through God. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes from facing the cross and placing faith in Jesus' finished work. That after Jesus said this, the end of his public ministry comes swiftly. We read the verse in the verse 36 earlier, it says when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus will no longer reappear again until the time of his sacrifice is at hand. And today... Jesus calls for you to trust him. He calls for you to place faith in him to find salvation from your sin. And he calls to you, Christian disciple, to walk in his light. Face the cross. Embrace him today. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, victory over sin and life in God are secured for all who trust in him. Jesus faced the cross in order to fulfill the perfect plan of God. He resisted any temptation to seek relief or deliverance because of his love for you and me. His gracious forgiveness and endless mercy drove him to Calvary's cross. And as he stood in Jerusalem preparing for that cross, he continued to call others to belief in himself. The judgment of all the defeat of Satan, and the calling of the cross that Jesus promised in this passage have all come to pass and all are welcome at the cross. All are judged for the reactions to the cross. And Satan holds no power or sway over the kingdom of God. You can find life in Jesus, the Son of God, today. And if you know God as Savior I would encourage you, Christian, to continue to face the cross. Give honor and glory to the Son of God who gave himself for you. He is your Lord, he is your Savior, and he is worthy of your life. Live for his honor and glory. And may the message of the cross transform our lives and lifestyles, conforming us into the image of Jesus. Father, thank you for the time we've had today to study your word together. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. And that because of him, we can enjoy the joy of a relationship with you. And Lord, today I pray that you would use this passage in our hearts and lives. That you would help us to face the cross that you would rock the hearts of unbelievers, that you would shake loose their hesitancies, their rejection of you, that you would give them grace and strength, you would give them boldness to to reach out for help, to to talk to someone and and get their questions answered about the gospel, that, that you would break down the walls of the hardness of their heart You would break up the fallow ground and that they would place faith and trust in you. They would spend eternity with you and may know your victory in this life. Lord, for Christians, that you would continue to convict us of our sins, that you would point us to the cross. Not as a blank check to do what we want to do because, Lord, then we don't understand what grace is at all. But as a humbling motivating reminder that through you we can live for your honor and glory in whatever we do. We pray that you would be with us now as we leave this place. Watch over, protect us, bring us back here tonight to worship you again as we observe the Lord's Supper together. In your name we pray, amen.